Matt is preaching this morning. His sermon is titled, Whose Fault is Jesus? Intriguing. And to discuss that, he chose a couple of scripture passages. The first one is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which, meant, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. The second passage is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sheila. Tim, do we still put manure on the trees when we're trying to make them grow? We do? Nice. So I realized as I was preaching this in the 9 o'clock service, it's going to be kind of some heavy stuff. And it gets really good and sweet as sermons go, but, but you're going to have to wait for it. We're looking at the questions people asked Jesus. And I think when we listen to his friends and then to women and then to his enemies ask him questions, we will find our own questions in them. And I know that this is a question that you have asked personally, intellectually, as you've watched the news, as you've sat with friends, maybe just by going, maybe by sighing. You wondered about suffering. And when in John chapter 9, 
They ask Jesus about suffering and they say, was it this man's fault or his parents' fault? They're trying to do something that has a good emotive intent but is actually misguided, which is they're trying to avoid involving God in the problem of evil and suffering, which is, can be good in some sense if we're talking about did God cause it, but it's bad in another sense if we're assuming he doesn't know that it happened. But we wonder some version of that question, right? We see someone suffering and we wonder, was it his fault or her fault? Was it her parents' fault or his parents' fault? I want to give you some words to be super careful around when we're talking about suffering. I mentioned earlier that I was at Presbytery this week and I had multiple pastors tell me I'm too specific with language, but I think it's because they feel guilty because they're not as specific as I am. Or my spiritual gift of overthinking is ever-present, and they noticed it. But it could be both and. Some words I want to throw out, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, and I'm going to let them simmer a little bit and then talk about them more in just a minute. Fault. Fault's a tricky word when we're trying to understand the ways of God. Cause. Cause is a pretty direct word, and it assumes a level of understanding I think that we might not have. Allow. Do, intervene. Anytime we're talking about God and especially suffering, whether it be an accident, like the second story in Luke 13, whether it be injustice, like the first story in Luke 13, or whether it be sickness, acute or chronic, like in John chapter nine, we wanna be careful about using those words when we're talking about God. Do you notice that the disciples kind of assume like us, and like us, especially after the Enlightenment, that we can understand a great deal about this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna play both sides of this a little bit because you're made in the image of God. You are creative. You're unique. You have been given as a human being the gift of prayer that angels don't even need because they're with God. Animals don't have, that's what's different than us. And yet, we have limits to our understanding. And we will always have limits. When we're in heaven, we'll be released from the pain of this world. We'll still be limited in our ability to understand because we'll continue to be finite. Even after Jesus returns to the earth or makes the earth new, our lim- our, we still will not know outside of space and time. We will still be limited creatures. And so when we approach a question, especially perhaps a question about suffering, it is good for us to remember that we are finite. And that doesn't mean don't ask the question. These are good questions. That's why they come up so repeat, repetitively in Scripture. It's a human tendency with a good root that leads us to a direction of trying to be like God. Do you remember the first time humans in the Scriptures tried to be like God? It was in the Garden of Eden. It's how Satan tempted them to stop trusting the good heart of God, which was their sin. And it comes up in us similarly, not in the questions that we have, but in the questions we demand answers to without flexing around them the way the scriptures would encourage us to flex around them. I think the worst versions of Christianity are the ones that take our hard questions and they answer tritely. 
There are pastors that speak so well of Jesus that I believe are leading people to hell by saying your sickness or your lack of wealth is because of your sin. And I want to stand up here and name them because of my emotion, but I think the better way to serve you is to point out the way Jesus interacted with those questions repeatedly. So the disciples asked Jesus who sinned, and I want to tangent off that for just a second. You know who would have loved that question in the Bible? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Job's friends. Are you familiar with the wisdom section of the scriptures? So it's five books, each one of them devoted to a large section of life and how to develop skill in suffering, prayer, daily living, the cynicism that comes with being on the earth more than 25 or 30 years, and romance. Those are the five wisdom books of the scripture. They teach us the skill of the with God life in those areas. The book of Job, very challenging book, exclusively devoted to suffering. He has these friends who are spectacular for a week. Sit with him, groan with him. Don't say a lot. Then they start speculating about why Job was suffering. Must have been his sin must have been his children's sin. So when we notice in in John chapter nine, the disciples asking this question, if we can picture Job's friends, they would have wrestled this question to the ground. They would have talked about his parents and their lineage and this man and what he did and didn't do, even though he was born blind. And if you read the book of Job, you probably got a little stuck in the middle. Maybe you turn to chapter 38, where God appears in a whirlwind and answers in a lovingly, sarcastic fashion where were you when I made the world which is not the sarcasm of your weird uncle it's the sarcasm of the Lord reminding us but not gently because he was in the form of a whirlwind that we have limits to our understanding and to the extent that that doesn't satisfy you That's the curse. And living with our finiteness in light of the curse is what is unsatisfying about that answer. And yet, the answer repeatedly in Scripture, and we know good things. I will come back, I will come to that at the very end of the sermon. We know so much about God, about our story, about injustice, politically, racially, or religiously. But there are limitations to our knowledge. And when we pretend that they're not, We do something very unchristian, especially when we give trite answers to the very, very hard questions. And what's happening is our brains and our our false selves are attempting to take us away from faith into a religion. And by religion, I mean where we understand everything, where we perform for God and we've checked the box. Done. Don't have to worry about that anymore. You know the world is more complex than that. And yet sometimes when we try and wrestle, especially the questions of suffering to the ground, what's happening is we're doing something profoundly dangerous scripturally and hurtful to ourselves, which is we're letting our false selves lead us down a path where we understand more than we can understand. And then we check that box and we're good with the God card. That's not faith. There is a good religion, James talks about it, but there is a bad kind, and it's where we understand everything, we perform a certain way, God's happy. It's not how it works. And I'm not talking about rationality. 
faith is incredibly rational. It does not ask that you leave your intellect at the door. If God exists, then of course he transcends time and space. And therefore our rationality is actually formed by what he says about himself and what he says about us. When I contrast faith and religion, I'm saying this one attempts to understand and purports to understand everything. This one understands much. And in that is righteousness, joy, peace, some understanding of suffering. And it's also faith that God exists and we are not him. So they asked Jesus, why is the man blind? Is it his fault or his parents? And Jesus so clearly and so directly answers no. No to your question and no to the assumption behind your question and no to your second question. No, it was not this man's sin. No, it was not his parents' sin. And in fact, the assumptions behind your question are not good. They're not evil. You're not bad disciples. Good question. But let's wrestle with it a little bit. By the way, John chapter 9 is kind of funny. We only read part of it, but people keep asking this guy in their religiousness to tell the story and then they argue with him and he's like, you can argue all you want, but I couldn't see this morning and now I can see it. And it happens like four times. You saw it just a little bit that he was starting to get frustrated in the nine, 11 verses that Shayla read for us. It's a fun chapter to read, in my opinion. The curse is why this man was born blind. When Adam and Eve stopped trusting in the good heart of God, the world came under a curse. And what that tells us is that God allows suffering. In my opinion, in my experience, in my study, that word is incredibly important for us. It brackets what we do and don't understand. It reminds us that God is fully good and fully in control and he gave us free will. And when we took that free will, because Adam and Eve are our first parents, when we took our free will and stopped trusting the good heart of God, the world came under a curse. And everything that's not as it should be has flowed out of that. And so the man was blind because of the curse. God allowed that to happen specifically for this person to be drawn into his story. And so that we might learn something about Jesus and the good news of Jesus. Jesus' miracles are exclusively to help us understand his sermons. He's not the only one that performed miracles because the miracles in other parts of the scripture remind us of the good news. That's their purpose. And so this man was graciously pursued by God so that we might understand something, so the disciples might understand something, so the onlookers might understand something about Jesus. And to the extent that that sounds unfair to you, it's because you think the curse doesn't affect every part of the world. If the curse affects every part of the world, then this miracle is a wonderful, gentle, loving thing that Jesus did. There's nothing fair about it. It's a wonderful, loving pursuit of him. This specific example draws the disciples and the onlookers into the truth that they are in a world that is dark. There is light. 
and Jesus is that light. If you know the book of John, you know that when Jesus says, I am the, he's teaching us about himself, and there are seven of these, and this is one of them. The man was not born blind so that we learn this. The man was born blind because of the curse. And Jesus, in his care for neighbor, healed him that the disciples and the onlookers and this man and you and me would understand that we are in a world of darkness and yet there is light. And I think if you read the rest of John chapter nine, you'll notice, perhaps like in your own mind, the religiousness with which we approach life. The reason they kept arguing with the man is because we long to understand in precise and semantic ways all that's happening. And it gets really absurd as chapter nine goes along because the man says, no, I was healed. And they're like, who are you to teach us? And he's like, I'm not trying to teach you. I'm just saying I couldn't see and now I can see. And they're like, you can't teach us. And we're like, you are missing the point. And the reason I say that is because in our fear, we believe if we have more semantic answers, that would remove fear. That is not what tends to our fear. What tends to our fear is the Holy Spirit of God comforting us and assuring us of his love. That's what tends to it. Not perfect answers, which doesn't mean stop asking the questions, but I hope that we learn and continue to learn how to ask them and then listen to Jesus as he answered his friends. Some of you study the Bible, you're wondering why Jesus used mud. I just want to honor that. A lot of you are Bible scholars. I thought about it. I studied it a little bit. I have studied it in the past. I th- here's why I think. I think he's reminding us that he was there at the beginning and he understands the created world and he's utilizing the world he created along with his power as the son of God to heal this man. The other reason is He didn't heal him immediately because he's drawing the community into what's happening so that they might hear the good news of Jesus. And the third reason is to interact with the mythology surrounding the pool of Siloam. And some of you are like, I don't care about any of this, but some of the people in this room do. They study the Bible very rigorously and so there's your little rigorous study moment. They asked, why is he blind? Was it his fault or his parents? And then I want to take us over to Luke chapter 13 because the way Jesus talks about these two incidents that happened during the the time that he was on earth doing his ministry overlap with our understanding of suffering and it's so important that we grapple with this. This is a section of scripture that is not attended to very regularly even though it's right in the middle of the longest gospel of Jesus. And when we talk about suffering and we don't take into account what Jesus said so specifically about these two incidents, we don't have as strong of a view of it. So when Jesus talks, or when, uh, yes, when Jesus is speaking in reference to something Pilate did, we don't actually know what Pilate did. Do you remember Pilate? He's the one that washed his hands and let the Jews and the Romans crucify Jesus. We know some other things about Pilate that he did. So we can determined from what Jesus said that what happened here was people were killed and it's for at least three kinds of oppression that I can name. Political, so Pilate is trying to hold down the area for the Romans, so it's political uh, suffering. It's also racial. The Jews are uh, both a race and a faith 
and they're being oppressed by the Romans to try and keep them in line because they kept trying to revolt. Um, it's also religious. They were different in, religious than, in religion than the polytheist Romans. And so Pilate persecuted them a little bit. That's what he's referring to. And I want to point out that we have not evolved a very great deal as humans. There is still this kind of suffering all around the world in various levels. You know about what's happening in in China to the persecuted church? It's bad. Do you know about um, the, the pastor in our denomination, the EPC, who was released this year from Turkey? Many on our missions team and our prayer team were praying for him. I was praying for him. You know why I didn't talk about him super often? Is... Uh, because he was used as a political pawn for, by, by, both, by both countries. And that just bothered me. And I'm not saying our country did the wrong thing. This is how the world works. But what I'm saying is it exists on a spectrum across the world and all three of those kinds of suffering happen in this country as well. The United States is not immune, though we have a great deal more freedom. And I'm not likening us to China. I'm saying that all across the world, all three kinds of suffering are happening all the time. We have not evolved, regardless of our great educational systems and the fact that the world is getting better with respect to poverty and it is getting better with respect to education. As Christians, we will continue to notice all sorts of kinds of suffering. And I want to say again, I'm going to say again. Why would I ever say I want to say something? I have the microphone. You're all sitting there attentively trying to stop saying that. We need to be very careful before we ascribe any motive, cause, emotion, and especially purpose to any kind of suffering. You know this. You know this instinctively. You're meeting with a friend and the suffering is very near. Someone hurt them directly. You never ask What do you think God's purpose is in that? Right? If it happened the day before you got together with them at Starbucks, you might wonder if in a couple of years we get to talk about that, but we're going to talk about it carefully. Whether we're talking about suffering across the world or in your own life or in a friend's life, if we're going to learn from Jesus how to interact with it, we're going to go very carefully and very slowly before ascribing any motive, cause, emotion, and especially purpose to sickness, to injustice, to accidents. Purpose is something we got to be real careful with, people. Real careful. You know when we'll understand Romans 8, 28? At the wedding feast of the Lamb. Go study Romans. Double check me on this. Some of you actually have already done this and we determined together that I was right. (laughs) We will understand the end of Romans when we're at the wedding feast of the Lamb, not even in heaven. Do you know what that means? Don't ever tell someone all things work together for good for those who love God, even though that's true. You don't ever need to say it to a suffering person. Ever. Unless they say, would you read aloud Romans 8, 20 through 30? Then you can say it. 
and you back off a little bit contextually and like, what does this mean? And you're humble and sad with them and for them. Any understanding that we receive about the purpose of suffering is going to be partial. And here's why I have to say that. First of all, because it's true. Second of all, the most disoriented people I have ever come across, first of all, because it's true. Second of all, are those who have tried to ascribe full purpose to suffering. Because we do not have the capacity to fully understand suffering. And if that leaves you unsatisfied, now you're prepared to pray like a psalmist. And now you are like Job. And now you're like the disciples who were listening to Jesus in Luke 13 and John chapter 9. Jesus was talking with respect to Pilate about a move of injustice and he links it to an accident. And that bugs me. Really? Our understanding of suffering links injustice with accidents? Political, racial, and religious injustice? And Jesus is gonna tell a story about an accident, a construction accident where 18 people died. Jesus links these two stories to get our attention and what he says to us is, when you see the effects of the curse, when you see sickness and injustice, you are to remember that the world is under a curse and turn to me for light. I am the light of the world. And that answer kind of unsatisfies me. I don't like that he told this parable about the tree afterwards, even though he mentioned manure, which is kind of fun. Because he's answering the question with respect to our limitations of understanding of suffering. Now I want to point out what we do know. And this is really important. You who have suffered, hear Jesus. Was it because I'm a worse sinner? No. No, no, no. You who have suffered, was it because I was a worse offender? He changes the language to make sure he has our attention, to make sure we know how brought into his love we are. No, you who have suffered, is it because you're a worse offender? No, it's right there in Luke 13. One of the things that drives me nuts about certain aspects of Christian culture, not you good people, but others, is we like to say, well, sin is sin, right? And what we mean is, isn't all sin a violation of love for God and neighbor? Yes. And don't we all need Jesus? Yes, in that sense, sin is the same, but sin is not the same in its effect. Sin is not the same in the destruction that it causes. There are kinds of sins that you perpetrate that affect people differently than others. And what we are to do when we notice that darkness is hear Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And when we see the effects of the curse in our own story, in the story of our friends and around the world, we are to turn to Jesus. And here's why this is such beautiful good news and this is our application for the sermon. It's gonna be the easiest application in terms of 10 minutes and the heaviest application. 
To the extent that we understand the gospel of Jesus and then the teachings of Jesus, we become people who can sit with one another when we're suffering. And that is as powerful of a witness as you will have, I think. Do you remember when Jesus said, you will do greater works than me? Here's one of the things I think he was getting at. When you sit with a friend who's suffering and you do not give them a trite Christian answer, but you groan with them, which is actually a really thorough Christian answer, I believe that in the kingdom, that is more powerful than when he walked on water. I believe that is what we are to be known by. Men and women who have been given a new heart and therefore have the internal strength and hope and peace to sit with one another and absorb just a little of their suffering. You have a friend who's suffering right now. And as you hear the voice of Jesus in John 9 and Luke chapter 13, the application then is to reach out to them. The way you already do, by the way, if you only text with this person, don't invite them to our prayer silo and say, let's just sit and grieve together. You'd freak them out, okay? But you have a friend who's suffering and you have a way of doing friendship and in the confines of that way of doing friendship, interact with them and sit with them. And they're not gonna wanna sit with them, sit with you. Because in America, we believe we're supposed to just run the other way and have some fun and forget about our suffering and not pay any attention to it. And the scriptures say, in this world you will have trouble and we who are followers of Jesus have been given by the Holy Spirit of God hearts of peace and love for him that extend to our neighbors and allow us to sit with one another. And many of you are good at this. I know because I hear the stories of people telling me, this is who sat with me and didn't say a word, but groaned. That's why this is such good news. Even as the answers are not precisely satisfying, what it leads us to is to learn to sit with one another, which is such a phenomenally important Christian skill. Scripture says so much more about suffering, it says it grows us up, it says it's part of our evangelism, it says that we have a a savior who suffered, but when an explanation is asked for, Jesus repeatedly, John chapter nine, Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, the book of Job, that was Jesus also, pushes back and reminds us that we have limits to our understanding and the reason that's good news is it keeps us away from the distraction The distraction is we can understand this. The opportunity is to learn to sit with one another. And the reason that's good news is that's the heart that Jesus gives you as a follower, one that is that stable. You're like, I don't feel stable. You are, though, in Christ. I would get nervous and say things. You would, and then you would say, I'm sorry. And your friend would receive that as love. The good news turns us into men and women who are this stable and this able to love one another because of the good news of Jesus. Would you pray with me? I've learned that's the only way to stop a sermon sometimes, is to say those words. (laughs) 
Father in heaven, we believe. Help our unbelief. We long to understand, and yet we understand that that will be finite. And as you teach us that all the injustice and sickness and accidents and sin in the world flow from the curse, teach us so much more strongly that you are good, that you have given us a hope and a future, that you call us to yourself in love, and that you empower us to love neighbors in this way. That we sit together in our sufferings and grief. Holy Spirit, comfort us in this moment as we consider praying for, reaching out to our friends and neighbors who are suffering, as we trust our friends who are reaching out to those of us that are suffering. Holy Spirit, comfort and assure us of your love. Amen.